Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Normally I could fit the whole passage on the insert. You could just look there if you'd like, but today you will have to have your version of the scripture, whether it be electronic version or your hard copy, pew Bible, have to have it open today. I'll have the ushers coming through to make sure your Bibles are open. No, not that bad, but I really would like you to have your Bibles open because I know when I try to listen sometimes um, with more gifted teachers, you may be able to do that. But for me, you're going to have to refer when I refer you to the passage, and I think that will be the most effective way for you to understand this passage. Acts 21, and I'm going to start reading at verse 27 and read through chapter 22 to verse 30. This is an exciting story. It's uh, a lot happens in this story, so it won't be hard. It'll go fast when I read it, not just because I read it fast, but because it's dramatic, and I think you'll see that as the story unfolds. Now, you remember at this point in the book of Acts, Paul has finally come to Jerusalem. Now, on the first level, the book of Acts was written to give an inspired account of the spread of the gospel from the time of Jesus' resurrection and sending of the Holy Spirit, the spread of the gospel, and the establishment of the first churches. That's the, the main reason. So we always are cautious when we draw too many um, formulas or models from the particular way in which things unfolded. It's more a description of how things happen rather than a prescription for us to follow exactly in every era. But there are certainly examples of activities and things that we should be about as Christians with regard to the mission of the gospel itself, we can draw some connection to or some example from, especially Paul, as he shows a defense uh, or a sermon proving Christianity, proving his call to ministry. We can extract aspects of his experience and see how they apply to our lives and the lives of Christians in the church. We just do so carefully, and over time, I think you're starting to understand, or maybe you already did, how to apply particular things from Acts and still keep the big picture of what God's will is for us to understand about the unfolding story of his redemption um, in Christ, now after he's ascended, still working by the Holy Spirit's uh, ministry through his people. In this part of the story, Paul's in Jerusalem. Um, he knows he's going to Jerusalem probably for the last time. Maybe this will be the end of his life at some point. He has already been on three missionary journeys, uh, and this is the final stretch of his life in ministry. Luke is traveling with him. So Luke is able, as an able historian and theologian, um, to outline exactly what's happening, to make a record for, of it so we can see it and read it today. And tells us these various defenses that Paul gives. The last seven chapters of Acts are a series of trials or inter interactions Paul has with various authorities, Jewish authorities, religious types, and world authorities, Roman types. Um, and he defends the Christian faith to all of these people. And we have it on record by God's Spirit for us to study today. We left Paul in the temple where he was making purification for himself and a couple others. You remember James and some of the elders thought it would be good for him to show up at the temple and prove that he's um, a supporter of the Jewish people, although he has now the Christian gospel to preach to them. Much unrest had happened about who he was and what he was teaching, and this would um, quell any bad messages or reports about him. And so there he is at the temple, and we pick up the story. This is God's word, Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 27. Verse 27. 
Please follow as I read. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. In one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one 
and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Let's bow together and ask the Lord to help us. Heavenly Father, please guide our consideration of your holy word this morning. Please give us understanding regarding the meaning of the passage, as well as a willingness to follow the precepts we learn. Please give us careful attention to your word this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us first recall from whence Paul had thus far come. We are some 20 years plus after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And after meeting Christ that fateful day, he took some 10 years to continue growing in the faith growing to a place where the leaders of the church in Jerusalem decided he was ready to be sent out as a representative of Christ, as a missionary, as an apostle, as it were. So he led three successive missionary journeys over several years. You remember those journeys as we walk through them together. Basically from Jerusalem, he went north and did a circle around and back to Jerusalem eventually or back to Antioch eventually and Three different times he went on forays into different places he had not gone before. Sometimes he would track back to a place he had already evangelized, preached the gospel, helped grow, picked elders, established the church. Sometimes there would be new cities altogether. Then he would spend more time at some of the places than others, more time in Corinth, for example, and of course, a couple years in Ephesus. And from those places along those journeys, he would write epistles. The Holy Spirit inspired those epistles, and they went out to the churches and were meant for all of the church to benefit from, as we benefit today, from those books. Now it was at the end of this period of time that he thought God was directing him back to Jerusalem. 
And he brings a cohort with him, Luke being one of those people, taking copious records of everything that he's, go, that he's doing. And when Paul was in prison, most scholars think it was at that time when Luke is in Jerusalem uh, that he is able to go around to eyewitnesses and compile all that he needs to compile to write the totality of Luke and Acts. And so we have this account before us, and especially now, this defense that he gives to the Jewish, basically the Jewish people, but with the Roman authorities listening. There are a series of these defenses we'll see Paul make, and there's much for us to extract from these defenses, both the content of what he says and even his approach. Uh, timeless in both of these features, helping us, the church today, Christians today, understanding how we might interact, especially when we are facing opposition, when we're facing hostility, because that's been the norm for most Christians. So there's some level of modeling that we have here from Paul. Now, most of us personally will not be able to tell a story like Paul tells, but all of us have something to share about Christ and how he saved us. We'll notice that there will always be opposition to Christianity. You will have the truth of what you know is real in your life, Christ saving you, the doctrinal basis for that, and you'll also believe it so much that you would be willing to suffer for it. That's what we see on display here throughout the New Testament, as a matter of fact. What we really take to heart is the approach Paul gives to his defense, his, his apology, as it were. He takes to heart, no doubt, what Peter said when Peter wrote in chapter 3 of his first epistle, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Paul seems to have taken this instruction to heart. He carries it out in his own exercise or his own defense. In fact, here we have Paul's defense, his first of several. In his defense of his faith before the Jews and the Romans, for that matter, provides a helpful example for declaring the gospel in a hostile environment. We can certainly relate. Now, first, I want us to take note of the reality of the false accusations that will come against Christianity. There is an example for us in the passage before us as these Jews from Asia, probably Ephesian Jews. Remember the backlash Paul received in Ephesus, the strong backlash? Many scholars think these Asian Jews are the Ephesian Jews who had followed Paul there and they were presenting these false claims, these false accusations against him. Now the idea of there being a bias against the Christian faith is not in our imagination. It's the consistent reality of the ages. It's what Jesus said in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So we observe Paul in the temple, verse 27 of our passage in chapter 21. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. They were desirous of arousing people to lay hold of Paul and kill him ultimately. They cry out, men of Israel, verse 28, help, this man is the one who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. You remember Paul already dealt with that message being out there. That's why he went to the temple to make purification, to show that he was not against the Jewish people. 
He wasn't against them. He was just teaching the fulfillment of all that they had understood. But there was no opportunity for discussion here. They were simply rousing the crowd to have Paul killed. This is the way it works. Opposition to Christianity doesn't want to discuss. It just wants to put out, wants to oppress, wants to cut out the message altogether. And that's the approach that these men have towards Paul. Verse 28, continuing, More he, moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. Now, where did they get this idea? Luke says they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, part of the cohort that Paul brought. Nowhere does it say Paul brought Trophimus to the temple, just that he was hanging around Trophimus. And so these men used that, they manipulated it to say, he even brought Greeks into the temple, which, by the way, is actually punishable by death. There's signs outside that have been excavated that show uh, that you cannot be a Gentile and enter into the temple complex near the temple itself, inside the temple gates, uh, without possibly being subject to death. And Paul brought someone like this. Shows all that's been said about him is true. They're just bringing up these charges. They're conjuring them up. They're inventing them. This is not unusual. It's an approach that you will see through the ages If there are people who oppose Christianity, they'll make up whatever to try to oppose it, to try to bring it down. Verse 30, all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. There was no pause to see if any of it was true. There was no desire. There is this reality that false accusations will come and there will be a practice of injustice towards Christianity. It's not a fringe thing. It's something that has happened over and over and over again and we'll continue to see it. Two years ago when I was in Denver, I thought it would be uh, intriguing. I was intrigued to go see the baker who all the news was about, the baker who would not bake a cake for the gay couple. And so I went to the the shop. I was expecting a much bigger place. It's just a tiny place in a strip mall, and it has an area where he does his work and makes cakes and so forth and all sorts of customized baked goods. And then there's a counter on the other side. Um, A family member works there, and they sell cupcakes and, and cookies. I got Sherry a t-shirt there. It's not, it's a small, very humble place. And there he was, he was meeting with somebody. I waited till he was done. Basically, if you could picture Bob Albright owning a cake shop, kind of a hippie who is a friend to all people, that's what this guy is. And after he's done, I kind of introduced myself and asked him how it had been for him the last couple years. And, and he was very uh, upbeat as far as how he's described his life and his livelihood. Um, and he described for me what had happened over the last few years. Now, I tell you this version because I don't know what you've heard in the media or what it's forecast or what it's broadcasted like, but this kind of shows you how things get twisted if people decide they're going to oppose something Christian. It, it happened that he's in an area that's very diverse, and there are people of all sorts of lifestyles that live in this area. He has many friends who identify themselves as gay, and this couple he had known for years, and they came in and would get baked goods, and they would have coffee nearby, and they would talk, and they had a friendly relationship. They knew he's a Christian he cared for them as a, as a neighbor and was not in any way mean to them or uh, exclusive. In fact, he had their business all the time. Now, when the gay marriage legislation passed, um, they started talking about wanting to get officially married. And so they just threw out the idea to him about him making the cake. And he said, I can't do it. You guys know that I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and I can't support that. I love you as people and you're my friends, but if I did that, that would be saying that what you're doing is right, and I don't believe it is, so I can't do that. 
they understood this. They weren't mad at him. They already knew what he thought and felt. He was convicted about it, but he was kind to everybody. They understood this. Months went by when somebody that they knew, the couple knew, got hold of what had happened and stirred them up to go back and confront him about it. They never actually did. They sent representatives, and then it became the big thing everyone sees on the news. It's not at all the way you see it depicted. It's just these bigoted, hateful guy just would not even have contact with somebody who doesn't think like he does. It's nothing like that. But when the unbelieving world decides it's going to fix its eyes on Christianity, it will go after it, and the truth doesn't matter anymore. It's just a matter of, of expunging it, getting it out of there. Don't, think, don't tell us what to do. At least that's their mindset, and that's what you see happen over and over again. Here the crowd doesn't care about the truth of whether Paul did any of it. Bottom line, verse 31, and as they were seeking to kill him, the word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. The tribune is a high-ranking a high-ranking Roman soldier who is over a, a, a detachment of troops, 200, who were assigned to the temple area. Very difficult assignment for sure. He was an educated man. He was obviously well-spoken, smart. He saw this uprising and he had many run down and stop it before they killed Paul. This couldn't happen on his watch. Verse 32, he at once took the soldiers and centurions, ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So they were already beating him. Um, they had not paused to discuss the matter. They were already beating him. The tribune came up and arrested him. Paul really saved him out of the situation and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He wanted to know what was happening. The crowd was yelling what they thought was happening. He couldn't make heads or tails about what was really occurring. Now, we know this tribune in history. His name was Lysias, uh, Claudius Lysias. He was a man who was of Greek origin, was in the Roman army, and at some point was able to buy his Roman citizenship. During the reign of Claudius the emperor, he sold at great cost citizenships that came with all sorts of benefits, and he bought his citizenship when Claudius was the emperor and so named himself in tribute Claudius Lysias. Verse 35, when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed crying away with him. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? So Paul speaks Greek to the tribune, to the commander, and he realizes Paul's a learned man, knows Greek. And then he starts to think, maybe this Paul is the guy that they've been watching out for. And maybe I've caught this guy. And that's what he's referring to in verse 38. Are you not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Thinking maybe that's who this guy is. That's what all the uprising is about. Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So Lysias is a smart man, a prudent man, and he sees things are really growing to the point where they have to lift Paul out of there or he'll be killed. Maybe Paul could say something to quell them, so he watches and he grants this permission. Now before we go to the defense itself, I want you to think of the reasons for this opposition against Christianity. Um, in this context, the Jews in particular didn't like the idea of Jesus the way Jesus was because he did not meet their expectations for social justice, for political justice. 
um, for domination or for independence to be above and uh, above all the other nations, like in their mind Israel once was. That Jesus who came and died could not be our Messiah. And so whenever someone would say he was, um, they would push against that if they didn't believe, if they were unregenerate. So they didn't accept Jesus on this basis. They also knew that accepting Jesus would necessarily mean the end of many Jewish practices in which they found security. This is their identity ethnic, uh, ethnically and custom-wise. So they didn't want to give that up either. They also knew that this message of Jesus said that they were sinners, that they were not right with God. But we're the people of God. But you're not right with God. Nobody's right with God because of their sin. And they need the Savior. And they didn't want to hear that message either. Now, if you think about it, that, those are the same reasons why people oppose Christianity in general, not just the Jews in the setting. The idea uh, that Jesus, recorded in Scripture and testified to, died the way he did, did what he did because of our sin, it just conjures up too much. Don't tell us we're sinners like that that require someone to die like that. We don't want that message. We're not that bad. And when the message of the gospel gets re counted over and over again that keeps confronting people with the reality of their sin and how bad it is. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, to us it's a precious thing that we celebrate. To someone who doesn't believe it, they must think that's barbaric that you would celebrate the person's a person's body broken and blood spilt. So this is part of why Christianity has a rejection to those who don't believe. They don't accent the death of Jesus, just this idea of him being a nice peacemaker who lets everything, uh, lets everything be and doesn't poke at anything which is nothing like the true Jesus at all. It's just a, a creation of their own. Hard hearts, ultimately, only can be softened by God and his spirit. But unbelieving, the unbelieving world wants to do away with Christianity and get rid of it. You know, I was thinking of a time I was walking on a path and um, a horsefly or some kind of a biting fly landed on my neck and I felt it. It started biting right away. And with almost Jedi-like reflexes, I whipped my hand back grabbed the thing, squeezed it to death, and threw it down. That's what the unregenerate want to do to the church. Because you annoy them. You upset them with your message. We upset them with their message. And no faithful pastor is going to tell you something otherwise. You should expect a certain level of that kind of pushback. Paul expected it everywhere he went, and maybe we're just soft, but we should expect it if we're preaching the actual gospel. It's not a fringe thing. Jesus said in Matthew 10, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. In Matthew 24, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. James later wrote, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The reality of false accusations and injustice towards Christianity is not a fringe teaching in the scripture and Paul demonstrates this. And now he has his chance to speak. Let's now pay close attention to what he says. This is helpful for us in all ages. The importance of having a ready testimony about Christ cannot be overstated for all of us as believers. Now, caution, I know what you may be thinking because you've probably heard the term, you should, what's your testimony, people ask you. It's kind of an American evangelical thing, a Baptist thing a little bit, I've noticed. Um, when Nico was uh, applying for the, the school he's going to, um, Everyone has to have a testimony where they can explain when they came to Christ. Now, I'm not knocking that. I'll come back to that in a moment. But that's not what we're talking about as such here. Um, but I remember him looking at me when the soccer coach asked him, Nico, what's your testimony? And he kind of looked at me like, what is that? 
you know, he's Presbyterian. We don't usually use that exact lingo. I know what you mean. Nico, just tell him what you believe about Jesus is all I said. That's the only testimony I care about. Um, but I knew what he meant. What he meant was, at what point in your life do you remember realizing or getting it that Jesus is your Savior? And people will talk about a date certain, a time that you know. It's certainly in the life of Paul, that's very obvious. I mean, very obvious when it happened for Paul. But the reality is for many, maybe most believers, they don't have that particular moment. Sometimes um, meaning, well-meaning people in our life will say, no, you, you should have that moment. You should have that time. I don't think so because I don't really, I personally don't have a moment like that. I have a period of time where things started crystallizing for me. Uh, maybe you are someone who's born and raised in the church. You've always, always known the gospel. So what's your testimony? From the young age, I've heard the clarity of the gospel and understood the only way to be right with God is through Christ. That's a great testimony. That's your testimony. And then you go into who is Christ and why you have confidence in your salvation because of him. That's just as worthy a testimony as any other. But I think it's important in sharing the gospel, as you know the content doctrinally of what it means to be saved, that you have some personal way of expressing it to somebody, how you came to clarity on it. It might be through your family upbringing. It could be some crisis in your life where it became clear to you. Whatever the case may be, this allows us to personally share. And Paul, even in his speeches, is very personal about how he came to know Christ and what it means to know Christ. So there's a bit of an example here for us that I think is helpful and useful. Let's look at it with that in mind. Now we come to verse 40. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Hebrew. Now, this is significant. In the Hebrew language, now, or the language of the Hebrews might be the better way to translate this, which many scholars say really means Aramaic. It's the language of the Hebrews, not necessarily the Hebrew language as such, although he could have, but the Aramaic language. You probably notice that in some of your versions of the Bible point is, it's a language that only the Jewish people really spoke. And it's very possible that Lysias wouldn't even know what they were saying. So he's very personally now speaking to them in the language they understand. Brothers and fathers, another very respectful way to begin this discussion. He's not speaking to them as the people who just beat him up, which they did. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense, the apologia, the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I'm one of you. I, I get your life. I understand your life. I was raised in it. In fact, to be honest, he's not saying this to brag, but I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. No more important school than Gamaliel's. Being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I'm I totally know who you are and where you stand. That's a beautiful picture of how we relate to people. I get where you're at, and I was there. And I was trusting in all the stuff that you usually trust in. I persecuted this way, talking about Christ, to the death. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. So he's now just giving testimony to all that he was in his life and what had happened to him. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus, to take those also who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem. He's recounting the history of his life and what he was like before. And then verse 6, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Now, this is a fantastic story. It's not the norm. So he's lacing in it the fact that there are eyewitnesses who are watching this. And I answered, who are you, Lord? And here's the key. This is where the doctrinal gets woven into the personal. He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth. There's no mistake in recounting and giving this defense. He's naming Christ. I am Jesus of Nazareth. It is Jesus who he's talking about. And you're persecuting me, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that is appointed for you to do. So he's recounting in a personal way his story, but he's weaving in the story of who Christ is and why he is significant. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. All of this is something God is doing. God is working in his life. God has interrupted his life. He had trust and faith in his flesh and in his ethnicity and in his religion. And all of that was stripped away and he met Christ. And then Ananias, who would be a a faithful witness, a devout man, verse 12, according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who were lived there, this man witnessed it all, came to me and standing by me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. That very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to see the Messiah. And they all knew. They could put together, in, because of who he's talking to, they had this background. They could put together the whole of what he's saying. Paul's saying, I met the Messiah. That's who Jesus Christ is. Christ being the anointed one, the righteous one, the God of our fathers, all language they'd understand. And he's giving them the content of the gospel. To see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. That's a way of saying identify now with Messiah. And that's what he does as a first generation believer now. He, he identifies in the washing with the water represents what spiritually happens when we trust in Christ. So all of this is his testimony. This is his story And in so doing, he's saying how a person, any person, could be right with God by believing on the Messiah, by identifying with the Messiah, by trusting in the Messiah. And that's all of our testimony. Everyone's a little bit different in how it personally has applied or impacted us, but it's still the same message of the Messiah taking our place, paying for our sins, and making us born again, giving us faith to lay hold of him. And as we express that, as we give testimony to that, the Lord brings people to himself. You may say, I don't have the kind of testimony Paul does. None of us do. Some of you are more exciting than the others, but the point is, it's Christ that we're pointing to, and it's very real, and it's very personal when you just share who you are, where you've been, what you've come from. And the most important feature is it do- that doesn't matter so much as what never changes is that message of the gospel. We really do all have a testimony of sorts, and it should feature the person of Christ. So ask yourself these questions when you formulate your own defense or testimony. Who are you talking to when you're sharing? You could share how you came to believe in Christ, and it's great if you grew up learning it. I don't want any young person in this church ever to feel like you don't have a testimony because you don't remember a day you didn't know Christ. That's exactly what we're trying to have happen. But you do have to lay hold for yourself of clarity about Christ. So if you don't have some moment Think now to yourself, do I trust in Christ? Do I rest in him? I hear it every week. I see it represented. Do I believe it? And if I do, share it that way. Say, you know what? I only ever remember hearing the gospel. And I know there are other things to believe in the world. 
You've been around long enough to know that. But I believe this is true. And I would like you to believe it too, and everybody to believe it too. That is a powerful message. And then know what the gospel is and be able to share it. Paul relays his commission. That's what sets the crowd off and leads us to the ending of the passage. He says in verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. They get insulted by what he says here. He, instead of staying in Jerusalem to convince everybody, Jesus tells them, make haste and get out of the Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. That's a sad thing when you think about it. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in the synagogue after after another, I imprisoned one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Certainly they'll know this change has got to be real because they, they just saw me in prison. He's saying, no, you can't stay there. But Lord, when Stephen was actually being executed, I was there. They'll know that this has to be of you. Verse 21, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That was it for the Jews who were listening to it. That the, you're telling us, Paul, that the Jewish Messiah would tell you to go to the Gentiles? We need freedom from the Romans. You're, you're so blasphemous now talking about Messiah like this. That's all they could think of at that point. They, they rejected, at least the, the whole of them anyways, the lot of them rejected. Up to this word, verse 22, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices. Sounds just like the crowd speaking to Jesus, doesn't it? Away with him, such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And so the final point that we can extract from here is Paul's willingness to suffer for Christ. It's something we have to be challenged with as Christians today. It's a hard thought. I don't want to suffer. I don't like to have even a little pain. But the reality is, suffering will likely come to every Christian in some form and some way. Now, when we suffer, though, we can do so wisely. Um, there is a wisdom in the way Paul navigates this suffering he undergoes for the sake of the gospel. Notice how it unfolds. Verse 23, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. So the tribune's a bit frustrated. He can't get the straight story from the crowd. He hears what Paul says, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to him. What's the real reason they're so upset about this? It doesn't make sense that what Paul has said would make them so upset. So he's going to find out, and if Paul's not going to tell him, he'll do it the Roman way. That's torture. That's how they find out the truth. And we're going to, it's not just a whipping, by the way, it's a flogging. Now, Paul's been beaten and whipped before, but this is a Roman flogging, which often would leave somebody permanently injured, if not killed. And so here he is, willing to suffer for Christ. If it's his time to die, we know he's ready to die. He said this multiple times. But you don't have to be foolish about this if you have at your disposal an opportunity to stay alive or in a place where you can continue to preach the gospel. But it is a worthy question. Are you ready to suffer for Christ? Am I ready to suffer for Christ? Notice that Paul was wise in how he approaches this. But when, verse 25, they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen? He knows it's not. And uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? Because if the commander has him do it, they're all in trouble. Roman citizenship was a premium, and it was expensive to buy. It would no longer be expensive to buy, to buy if it didn't protect you in a basic level. It was of utmost importance to maintain all the benefits of Roman citizenry. And so the idea that they almost near killed a person 
who is a Roman citizen, terrifies them all for good reason. So the tribune came in and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes. And the tribune said, and as a way of saying, you better not be lying. He says, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. It cost me a lot of money. How did you get it? And Paul says, I was born a Roman. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. It was certainly a time for Paul to possibly die, and he'd be ready for it. And we should all be willing to suffer. However, if there is at our disposal a way to navigate this, whether it be by legal means, just, way, uh, just being streetwise about it, we should do it. Because what are the two things that should concern us as a church? Really two things. One, that we are allowed to follow God's word in our own lives and practice. And number two, that we could preach the gospel. These are the two things we should all be willing to give whatever it takes to be able to do. And to defend those two things are what we should be about. We still live in a country where the country was actually founded upon the idea that people could have the right to practice their own beliefs. That's what all we're asking for, that we could follow what the Word of God says and be free to preach the gospel. But you and I both know that that looks dire. And again, back to the point of a pastor trying to be faithful, not alarmist, what kind of a pastor would I be if I did not warn you that that day may be coming? where those things are at serious risk. So until that day comes, let's do everything we can by carefulness, consideration, savvy, God's help to navigate those freedoms so we have them. But we have to recognize that there may be a day that comes when we are not allowed to practice what the Bible says or preach the gospel. And in that case, what do we have to do? We have to do what the Bible says and we have to preach, what Christ, preach the gospel anyways. That's what we have to do. You know, I got to watch the uh, boys' soccer team for HCA play in its first state Final Four, which is a big stage for us. We're a 2A school, barely, and every other school is a 4A school that's in there, and they're they've all been there before. And our guys kind of looked like they hadn't been there before the first five, ten minutes of the game. It was a big stage with lo a, a loud crowd. And I thought to myself, what a good job our coach did, and he did a great job of telling them what to expect. He told them what to expect. This is what it's going to be like. It's a big stage. It's not something we've seen before. They're going to be bigger, stronger, faster than what we've seen before. And you're going to have to bear up under it. And even with all that preparation, when the whistle started, we did look like we were on our heels a bit. We held this team off that was better than us in skill. one nothing's not bad. We lost, but it was one nothing. But at the end of the day, um, they were well prepared, and it still was a bit difficult. still was a challenge. So to the church, we have to be well prepared there's a certain softness that we have as American Christians. It's not a knock. I'm happy to be here. I hope it stays soft. But if it doesn't, I don't want you to be shocked when that whistle blows for persecution or for oppression or when that real pushback comes to the two basic things I said, allowing us to follow what the Bible says and preaching the gospel. We'll be ready for it. We'll know what God's called us to, and he'll give us all the grace we need to stand up under it, just like he did with Paul. On the next day, verse 30, Desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet and brought Paul down to set him before them. It wasn't God's will at this point for Paul to be killed. Um, he was wise about who he handled the situation, calling on his Roman citizenship, and it allowed him another opportunity to again declare the gospel. May God give us many, many more opportunities to proclaim the gospel that is so precious to us that we would be worth to give, we, we would be happy to give our lives for it, knowing our eternal life is absolutely secure in Christ. Let's pray.
Lord, we are grateful for your word and its uh, honesty with us and the depiction of what actually happened as a way to help us know how you will be faithful to us uh, now and forever. I pray, O oh Lord, that you give us clarity about application of this text. Help us to know um, what to look for in the world. Help us to rely upon you, to call upon you, to be faithful to you ultimately. Give us faithfulness to you. You have saved our souls. You have given us eternal life. You've given our lives now meaning. Uh, so, Lord, th this is a gift that we could never repay. But please give us faithfulness if the day comes when we have to proclaim this at some cost. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.